there, and welcome to Unknown Friends. I am Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and this is my book review podcast where I'm discussing classic literature, historic and modern, both fiction and nonfiction. And today, you are listening to episode number one of Unknown Friends, in which I'll be talking about the novel Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Before I dive in, let me quickly introduce myself, uh, just in the unlikely event that the audience of this podcast will ever extend beyond my mom, my dad, and my aunts. As I said, my name is Rochelle. I write plays for churches, Christian schools, and homeschool co-ops to perform, and I teach both Latin and writing to high schoolers. If you want to learn more about me or my writing, you can check out my website, kittywayandproductions.com. I blog there, there's lots of information about my play scripts there. Or I am also on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, etc. Anyway, I would love to connect with you, especially if you have thoughts about the book Till We Have Faces, or if you have recommendations for books for me to read and review here on the podcast in future. So C.S. Lewis. You know that excruciatingly difficult question people sometimes ask? What is your favorite author? Oh, that is so hard. But for me, when I get asked that question, it always it always comes down to me saying that C.S. Lewis is my favorite author. I grew up on C.S. Lewis. When my sister and I were little, my dad read The Chronicles of Narnia to us. And then when I got into my teens, I read the Screwtape Letters, I read the Space Trilogy, uh, The Great Divorce, pretty much all his fiction throughout my teens and loved it. Most of it I reread multiple times. As far as Till We Have Faces, this was a reread for me, but it had been a long time. So my family, we read this together when I was in high school, I think. I don't remember what age exactly. My dad read it aloud. And it merits more than one reread. I know I will uncover more layers of meaning each time. It's it's just that kind of book. It really needs rereading. So I was really grateful for the chance to return to it and dig a little deeper into what Lewis is saying. So Till We Have Faces, a myth retold. C.S. Lewis's last published novel, last work of fiction, published in 1956. Uh, the same year that The Last Battle came out, the last installment in the Narnia series. It's also interesting to note what else Lewis was working on around that same time period. He seems to have kind of a pattern of working through some of the same ideas in both fiction and nonfiction form at more or less the same time, until we have faces uh, over a period of a few years. He was also working on his semi-autobiography, Surprised by Joy, which was published the year before, Till We Have Faces came out. And this was also about the same time that he was working on The Four Loves, which was actually not published until 1960, but he was in the process of working on The Four Loves in the, in the second half of the 1950s. And a lot of key themes in Till We Have Faces are also explored in those two works of nonfiction. But that said, Till We Have Faces is different from anything else he wrote, at least any of his other fiction. I've read all of his fiction, and it is very nuanced. It's subtle. It's complex. It shares themes. You can, you can recognize it as Lewis's work, but it also feels a little bit foreign because of the way he approached 
the story and because of the way he approached the themes, uh, which can make it, I think, a little bit hard to access, but it's so, so worth the effort. This is also, according to Lewis, his best novel, his most mature, most accomplished novel. And uh, the full title really is Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold. This is a retelling of the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche, drawn from the work of Apuleius in the 2nd century AD. But this is the source material for Till We Have Faces, the myth of Cupid and Psyche. While some of his other work, like the Chronicles of Narnia, for instance, do draw from mythology, you've got mythological creatures in the Chronicles of Narnia and various even sort of themes and tales that get interwoven, this approach to Greek mythology is different. It's immersive. We don't get a doorway into the mythology from our world. We are just sort of thrust into it and have to figure it out from the inside, which is why I think it can be a little bit harder to access than something like the Chronicles of Narnia. And I mean, the Chronicles of Narnia is just written with a different purpose in mind. So what is this myth about? Cupid and Psyche. The plot, essentially, I'm not going to go into it in detail. The idea is that there were these princesses, three princesses. The youngest was especially beautiful. She ended up making the goddess Venus jealous. She was so beautiful and almost worshipped as a goddess herself. And so she had to be sacrificed. But Venus's son, unbeknownst to her, had fallen in love with Psyche and made her his wife. When, when everyone thought she had been sacrificed, Cupid actually rescued her. And then she misses her sisters after a while. So her sisters are allowed to come and visit her and then grow jealous of her beautiful palace and her life with Cupid. And things go downhill from there. Psyche is convinced by her sisters to betray her husband and then gets exiled and has to go through all these trials in order to sort of win her place back. And eventually there's a happy ending. She and Cupid are reunited. She's made divine and everyone lives happily ever after, except the older sisters who die a horrible death. True story. Lewis is doing something very different. So he uses this myth as his source, but Lewis is doing his own thing with it, and his novel is fully complete on its own. It's totally self-contained, and it's asking and answering questions that don't even occur to the original myth. But this story of Cupid and Psyche had actually been haunting Lewis for years. From the time he was an undergraduate, the story had struck him as a little bit illogical on the part of the older sisters, who, according to the story, are both jealous of Psyche, of her palace, her beautiful life here, and suspect that her husband is a horrible monster. And so, you know, what's going on there with these sisters? That, that doesn't seem to make sense and coincide. And that had bothered C.S. Lewis, the, the logical, rational Lewis, for literally decades, and he'd thought for a long time of retelling this story from the perspective of those older sisters. So instead of making Psyche, the youngest sister, the main character, while she is an important character, Lewis is actually telling the whole story from first-person point of view from the perspective of Psyche's oldest sister, Oruel, who is not beautiful like Psyche, everyone considers Oruel to be very ugly, and her life is wrapped up in caring for and teaching and spending time with Psyche. He also adds this whole context of a kingdom called Gloam. It's theoretically set in like the 3rd, 4th century 
BC, not too far from Greece is the idea. And Lewis also adds this character who is known affectionately as the fox. He is a Greek slave that the kingdom of Glome has won in war. And so the fox is a key figure in the palace where Orwell and Psyche grow up as princesses. He is their tutor, and he brings this element of Greek philosophy and reason, rationality, which is in conflict somewhat with the paganism and pantheism of the kingdom of Glome. So Lewis sets this whole story and Orwell's narration in the context of this highly dysfunctional family. Her father has a lot of problems. He's a flawed father, a flawed king, and her mother is dead. The kingdom is in turmoil for a lot of the book, especially while her father is king. And then another element that comes into play later is once her father passes away, Orwell becomes the queen of the land. And so that brings in a whole new aspect that's entirely absent in the original. And um, that develops Orwell's character in a different way. So we get to know her very closely. She's a fascinating character, honestly. And very admirable in a lot of ways, highly admirable and inspiring. I mean, Orwell, she has great strength of character. She's remarkably intelligent. She values, she values justice and consistency. She's devoted to carrying out her responsibilities, willing to take huge risks, personal risks. And she loves Psyche, her youngest sister, very dearly from the time Psyche is born. She dotes on her. She builds her life around caring for this younger sister. So then when Psyche is sacrificed to the goddess Venus, who is known as Ungit, Orwell is devastated. She lived for Psyche. So this whole novel is written as Orwell's case against the gods. Or rather, I shouldn't say the whole novel. It's actually split into two parts. The second part is is far shorter than the first. The first part is written as her complaint, her case against the gods, who she argues are inconsistent, are arbitrary. Um, They don't reveal themselves when humankind needs them to reveal themselves. She insists that the divine is silent, when we need answers, and that if she has acted wrongly in her life, it's because she had no evidence upon which to act rightly. She was given no answers when she needed them. That's her case. Now, interestingly, in the second part of the book, we actually see Orwell after having written this case against the gods. She says the writing of it revealed to her some things that she had never put into words in that way. And the very writing of her case against the gods makes her reevaluate some things. So by, by part two, she's actually nearing the end of her life. And now having written this complaint against the gods, she has some questions again. And I won't reveal exactly how it ends, but um, Orwell does encounter the divine in a way that she never expected, and it changes some things for her. So what are the main themes that Lewis is exploring in this? What what questions is he considering? I'd say there are two primary themes that are very interconnected, but one is the theme of what looks like love, but is actually selfishness of a sort. And uh, secondly, sort of the theme of conversion, 
or how we encounter God, how we meet God. If I had to pick an overarching theme, I think it would actually be conversion. But what Orwell needs converted from is in great part this selfishness that pretends to be love. That's one of her defining problems. Her error is that she devours people. She consumes those that she says she loves. This is true of her relationship with her younger sister, Psyche. And it's also true, and this is one thing that I pretty much had totally forgotten from when we read this as a family, but I got so much more deeply this time around. She also, her her chief advisor, one of her most loyal servants when she is queen, uh, is a man called Bardia, and she also, you could say, consumes him. It's difficult to see because, in part, the book is written from Orwell's perspective, but especially once you get toward the end of the book, it all starts fitting into place and becoming clear. What Orwell does when she loves someone or thinks she loves someone, it's this devouring love, which C.S. Lewis also discusses in in The Four Loves, this um, possessive kind of love, which isn't truly love at all, but it so easily fools us into thinking that it's really love. And so an exploration of how that looks and how far that can actually go is one of the main things Lewis is is wrestling with until we have faces. Orwell just goes to extremes in what she would think of as proving her love to someone, but it's actually an effort to control that person which is scary. It's, it's very, very scary. And it's so revealing of human nature and how we can deceive ourselves. We can truly, sincerely think we love someone, but in reality, we are trying to consume them for our own benefit. And that is what Orwell does with everyone she thinks she loves. So that's a key theme. And then secondly, how Orwell starts to understand that that problem in her soul and how she eventually comes to encounter the gods or the divine. That's that's one of the things, sorry, sidetrack for a moment. That's one of the things that makes this book difficult. If you try to too literally or too allegorically read it and try to come up with a sort of one-to-one analogy between like, oh, this god represents the God of the Bible and this God represents Satan or, or whatever. That's difficult to do and that's not what C.S. Lewis is trying to do or, or wants his readers to do. So you have to step back a little bit from the world of the novel and look at the bigger picture and look at the, the themes, the truths about human nature, about life, and yes, about the divine that the book represents. Here's the thing with with C.S. Lewis and paganism. It's I think it's difficult for us to understand how he viewed pagan beliefs. It, they seem so foreign and so antithetical to Christianity. But C.S. Lewis held paganism in great respect, and he saw in it foreshadowings of certain truths revealed in Christianity. So he is comfortable using a pagan setting to illuminate realities of life, and yes, even of God and of our relationship to him. We tend to feel that as a contradiction in terms and just an impossibility. Teaching about Christianity from a pre-Christian world, but Lewis might say, well, God was there in the pre-Christian world, even if Christianity, as we know it, wasn't yet. So 
yes, we can talk about God at any point in history. He's always been there. C.S. Lewis maintained that pre-Christian culture has much more in common with Christianity than post-Christian culture. So he saw great potential in paganism, pagan beliefs, and a pagan world, far more potential and fertile ground for Christianity than post-Christian science and philosophy. So Orwell's complaint throughout the, the vast majority of the book is that the gods, or I'll try, to, I'll try to say the divine, let's keep this as accessible as possible, the divine is silent, that they don't give us answers when we need them, they don't explain themselves or explain life to us, we're, we don't know what we're supposed to do because they never speak. But what she gradually comes to realize is that perhaps when we perceive the divine as silent, what's actually going on is that we are deaf. Or perhaps the divine is silent at times because he knows that anything he says will be used against him. He knows where we are and how we will hear what he says if he says anything. And sometimes it's in no one's best interest for him to speak to us. Sometimes it's not that the divine is unapproachable, but that we are unapproachable. And we don't even realize it. We may, we may think we are, you know, we're waiting for God's voice, for the divine to speak and show us some direction. But actually, we are, we are not open to that at all. If the divine did speak, we would reject it or twist it in some way. Until we are willing to be honest with ourselves and confess who and what we actually are, what we have done and what we truly desire, we and the divine cannot meet. We cannot, we cannot communicate at all. And so here is the quote from the book where that concept really uh, takes shape and where Lewis derives the book's title. Here's the quote. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? So that's, the, that's what Orwell writes after she's sort of come to this revelation of who she is and who the divine is. And that, that word that must be dug out of us that she refers to in the quote, she's talking about the thing that defines us, that the essence of who we really are until that truth is dug out of us. Why should the divine hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? So that's where the title comes from. Ironically as well, it has been speculated that the name Orwal is related to the Greek word oroxis, meaning digging, excavation, mining, that kind of thing, to, to dig down into something. Which is fascinating because she is forced to dig and the truth has to be dug out of her like that quote says. All in all, the journey that the story takes you on is remarkable. The way you find yourself associated with Orual, the main character, you sympathize with her, and you easily find yourself on her side in this complaint against the gods that she makes. That makes the ending so powerful when you have sort of sided with Orwell and gradually, as she finds her case undone, unraveled thread by thread, it's shocking in a way, and you find yourself implicated. 
you are with Urwal on this. And then the ending, I mean, it is glorious. After making this complaint against the gods and then finding it unraveled, finding herself unraveled, and finally encountering the gods, now that she is honest, she finally has a face with which she can meet the gods face to face. Then she concludes the book that she's written, and among, among the final sentences are these. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? So, is this a book I'd recommend? Absolutely. This is intensely thought-provoking. Its characters are sympathetic and true to life. Overall, I would say, one of the unique things about Till We Have Faces is that it feels essentially like historical fiction. Uh, it feels very realistic in its setting, this, like I said, about 4th century BC world. But also, the narration is unique. This is one of his few first-person narrators, and his only female first-person narrator. And this is probably, I would say, the deepest psychological immersion into a protagonist in any of his books. So yeah, I would, I would absolutely recommend it on a scale of 10. It's like a 15 or something. As you read it, keep in mind these two major themes. Watch for Orwell's character to demonstrate what looks like love, what she believes is love, but is truly a form of selfishness, a way of consuming the object of her love. And then this process of self-understanding, of honesty with oneself, and then ultimately before God, that develops, especially near the end, but you can see the seeds of it throughout even the the first part where she's making her case against the gods there are little opportunities for her to be more honest than she is and she misses them and it's it's easy for the reader to miss them as well because the book is narrated from Orwell's point of view but if you're watching for it it's easier to spot and this is why a reread is, is so helpful as well so watch for those two themes I would say also like I've mentioned don't try to interpret the book too literally while this book is deeply Christian and deeply informed by C.S. Lewis's own conversion, nevertheless, it's much more nuanced than just a straightforward allegory. So don't be too put off by the Greek mythology. It is, it is foreign. This book is exploring human nature and yes, divine nature as well, but not trying to communicate the whole gospel shall we say. It's not trying to communicate the whole nature of God. It's trying to answer the question, is God silent and why? And how can we encounter God? What prevents us from encountering God? Really, in all of his fiction, you have to understand what C.S. Lewis is doing in that particular book, and it's not always what you think he's doing. I hope discussing some of these themes and the, the source myth, as well as how C.S. Lewis changes that, my hope is that this discussion will help perhaps illuminate some of those things and just give a little bit of extra guidance as far as what to look for as you read the novel. 
If you have any questions or thoughts on this book, please let me know. You can email me at kittywham at gmail.com or connect with me on social media. I already told you all about that. I hope you tune in next week again for episode number two. I will be discussing Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. So kind of a shift in style and tone, shall we say. And I'm super excited because next week for that discussion, my sister Lorray will be on the show discussing it with me. We should have a lot of fun and hopefully you enjoy listening to us discuss as well. So thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.